Welcome everybody to another Gene Fixers. My name is Ethan. My co-moderator is Julia Vitarello. Hopefully she'll be joining us shortly. Uh, Gene Fixers, for those who don't know, is a community of parents, patients, and scientists battling the long tail of genetic diseases. We invite you to join us in a thoughtful, respectful, high quality conversation. We share here with good intent and ask everybody listening to do the same. If we invite you up to the stage, please, no pitches or promos or monologues. We want to keep you focused on the specific topic areas we're going to discuss today. And with that, let's get started. Our guest this week is Julia Hawkins. And I want to let you, Julia, briefly introduce yourself um, and talk about SDS. What, what is Schwachmann diamond syndrome for those uh, who don't know? Well, thank you so much, uh, Ethan, and I'm really delighted to be here. Um, so everyone, I'm Julia. Um, I have a daughter uh, who has SDS. Uh, she was diagnosed uh, six years ago. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't know what SDS is, it's obviously a, a rare genetic, primarily affects the bone marrow, the pancreas, uh, skeletal formation, um, and it can also present with failure to thrive, uh, neutropenia, short stature, and, um, and some cognitive impairments. Um, I guess you know, ever since my, my daughter was, was diagnosed, I've really been on this journey, not only to understand the condition so that I could, so that I could best help her, but also I guess I've been worried because in about 30% of SDS cases, they go on to develop life threatening hematological cancers by the age of 30. And so I guess my question all along has been, well, is my daughter in the 30% or, or in the 70%? Um, and, and I guess my, my journey in, in all of this has been to try to connect with all of the different types of stakeholders, the KOLs, uh, the clinicians, the academics, uh, as well as obviously trying to, to, to connect with and build a, a patient community. Um, and, and so that's really what I've been doing over the last six years. Uh, in my day job, I'm a, I'm a general partner at a VC fund called Local Globe here in London. I joined three years ago and um, have been developing our health tech practice. The reason um, why I'm, I'm doing that is actually because I feel like I have a, a really unique in, insight and perspective on the on the patient per, patient journey when it comes to access to healthcare. Um, and everything that I do um, has actually been informed by um, by this journey with my daughter. So um, on the one hand, I feel yeah privileged. Um, I, I, it also has been really tough, as most of you know. But I I guess the, the I wanted to just also explain how I got to know Ethan because I am so excited about the work that we are that we are doing together. Um, we were introduced by a, by a friend called Ollie Rayner, who um, who some of you may know, and he's obviously been on 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 the show and is a is a frequent listener. Um, he uh, is a cystic fibrosis patient who reached out to me on LinkedIn saying, "You know, I'd love to understand and help you in SDS." Um, we had a brief chat, and when I told him about where I was and what I was hoping to achieve for SDS, which was really to create a strategy for how to um, both present all of the existing programs that are uh, that are ongoing at the different academic institutions as well as 
uh, understand what are the different, uh, what are the aspects that we need to fill in and that we can start to fundraise for from a, from a patient organization perspective. And he said, I know the person, perfect person for me to connect you with. Um, and that was how I got to know, got to know Ethan. Um, I'll pause there and maybe hand over back to you, Ethan, to, to start talking about more in detail, I guess, this roadmap that we're, that we're building. Yeah, let's go back to the question that we pose here in the topic of the today's the big topic of today's show, which is what what's in a cure roadmap? And I think that term has been used by folks. Um, and so obviously every every gene, every group is going to have to have a a bespoke you know cure roadmap. There will be components of of roadmaps that are kind of common uh, among groups, and that's kind of what we wanted to get out of this this discussion today. And I want to make this starting actually henceforth, we'll be uh, changing the format here a little bit with Gene Fixers on, on the Thursday show to make it much more interactive. Um, and so we're going to kind of do three sections of Q&A here, uh, sort of focused on different components of, of, of roadmaps that are shared, you know, across genes, across across cure odysseys. So for the first section, I kind of want to go and I'll sort of set the, the stage a little bit with a little bit of um, Sort of pro, uh, sort of sort of preview here and summary, and then and then invite people to come up with questions or comments about this specific component of, of a cure roadmap, and and that is, you know, you have to have a portfolio, a diversified portfolio approach. You have to be considering multiple modalities uh, uh, becoming medicines, and you have to uh, approach. You have to you have to uh, pursue these medicines using a parallel approach, not a serial approach. Um, and so I like to call up people again, if, if you'd like to you know, raise your hand, if you want to come up and discuss this particular part of, I think, what goes into a cure roadmap, which is, you know, how do you build this diversified portfolio uh, that is modality agnostic um, and, 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 and allows you to build a sustainable multi-year therapeutic pipeline? Um, and so uh, I'll kind of let people who are interested in that point uh, come up, but I'll first sort of talk about how the SDS Cure Roadmap is, uh, project is, is taking inspiration um, from two other stories and two other groups that I think probably a lot of other folks uh, are taking inspiration from. In fact, we'll try to bring the people who are involved um, you know, in those other journeys, uh, we'll try to bring them up to uh, uh, to to this to this program at a future date. Uh, in particular, the folks at Cure SMA Foundation, um, and so uh, the Cure SMA Foundation, Cure so SMA Spinal Muscular Atrophy. Uh, the, the the reason that's I think a really important kind of benchmark now uh, for for building a diversified portfolio of medicines that cuts across different modalities is that there's now actual proof um, that you can have. An approved gene therapy, first of its kind, approved gene therapy, Zolgensma, um, which is you know delivering the gene uh, 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 as sort of classic gene gene therapy. You have you have Spinraza, which actually its approval predated Zolgensma, um, and that's a, an antisense oligonucleotide uh, that that activates a, a backup gene. Um, and you have a small molecule <laughs> uh, called Rizdaplam, or, or Rizid is the is the the, the the brand name, and it's sort of like a small molecule. So it's looking at this gene therapy and an ASO and saying, "Hey guys, hold my beer, uh, I, I can do this too." Uh, and so that when I saw that, and, and Rizzi was a third of the of the three to be approved in the last year. So that is really a first of its kind because that's an example again of three different modalities. Um, all become, you know, all actually seemingly really efficacious in some ways, you know, even using the word curative, although that can, that can be, uh, you know, maybe problematic for, for some, but I think, you know, the proofs in the pudding with something like SMA where 
the natural history is pretty brutal um, and unrelenting. Uh, and so, again, uh, you know, how did that come to pass? We'll actually have the, the, the chief science officer of the SMA Foundation up on the show, um, hopefully in a few weeks to, to in a few months, I should say, to talk about that, uh, about that. But I think that is has been a guiding light in how we've crafted the SDS Cure Roadmap. And from the outset, thinking about there being multiple modalities um, and that you're going to have to do these in parallel, not in serial. So uh, anyone who wants to sort of comment on that or, 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 uh, or, or have a question about that, please raise your hand now. I've got someone who's raising their hand and uh, trying to get you up on stage here. I don't know if there's a, an AV issue here. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to bring up a comment about that aspect, about their journey, for example, uh, for their cure map, are they imagining right now uh, the different scenarios? Or, or are you all invested in, say, one modality like gene therapy or whatever it is be curious to hear uh if you wanted to comment uh, about um you know how you're approaching multiple modalities please go, go ahead and uh raise your hand as well um so we'll, we'll let that percolate uh, you know you know julia i'd like to come back to you to, to you for a second here um you know there's multiple aspects of of, of uh you know of, of kind of de-risking they have to go into this and you've got to rely on kols I mean, maybe you can comment on the strategy we've been pursuing here uh, in terms of getting an assessment from experts, uh, maybe even comment from you know the the advocates uh, or parent side about what that's been like uh, to sort of see how we flesh out what are the possibilities of the SDS therapeutic landscape because you obviously have been surveying that landscape for for quite some time um, and just wondering what what you maybe you can comment on that 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 experience. Yeah, sure. So I guess there have been there. Are two uh, leading academics uh, that have programs underway. One is in Cambridge, the other one is at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, we reached out to both of, both of them to get their feedback on our early draft of our paper. Um, one of them said, I don't have time right now. The other one came back to us within uh, 24 hours and had marked up the paper um, and also jumped on a call with us actually just before this um, and and said that this was a really welcome um, welcome approach and he, that he was really excited about working with us. Um, in terms of reaching out to the patients um, and the other patient organizations, Ethan and I uh, pulled together um, all of the various patient groups and we did a call about six weeks ago um, where we laid out what our plan was to, to write this paper um, and to ask for you know initial feedback um, and everyone was really positive. I think that they, um, you know, some are, some are more or less uh, I guess up to speed on 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 all of the academic work, but nonetheless, we felt that it was really important to start to build this. Um, yeah, essentially, uh, to 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 get buy-in in, into this because SDS is like like many of of the conditions that you are all involved with are are very small, and and from my perspective, it's really important to have all of the stakeholders aligned and and you know, working together, singing from the same hymn sheet um, and, um, and, and, and really getting behind the strategy, um, which is why I, yeah, I've been, yeah, so excited about, about the feedback. So the next step is we have a number of other um, collaborators that we want to share the paper with. Um, some of them are, um, are other investors. So we have some biotech investors. One of them is David Granger, who's actually funded um, the the program at Cambridge. Uh, he's at Medici, which which is a U.S. Uh, a U.K. based fund. 
We also have Mary Wheeler, who's a um, an investor at BioRock. She's in, um, also, we did the same venture uh, venture capital program together. She's a Kaufman fellow and we're in the same class. So she's been involved um, from with and along with my, on this journey with me since day zero. And she's very engaged as well as um, we have Yale Weiss at, at uh, Ultragenics who also has been, She's become a really good friend of mine. I she invited me to speak at a conference uh, a couple of years ago, and um, and actually has uh, invested in some of her team are actually doing some work on SDS already. So I think during I guess during the course of um, you know when you're kind of pushing this big boulder uphill and you're trying to make connections and you don't really know um, when and how they will come to fruition. But I I feel like through this project everything is 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 basically being pulled together and all of the connections that I've ever made are now um, forming a really important part and are really important stakeholders in, um, in, in coming up with this unified strategy. And I think what's really, you know, special about the SDS case, um, and maybe we can, you know, as we're talking more about that, maybe that people can sort of start to draw the you know the parallels with their with their case and their, their community their gene but you know the SAS community it, 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 i think benefits from the fact that there is a kind of clinical trial readiness um, because you know we we kind of know what the primary endpoints would be for for a trial we, we know that there would be actually pediatric trials uh, that could be conducted over months several months long time frame you know you could use something like um, you know cytopenia or neutropenia basically the the undercount or low cell count of specific uh, 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 you know cell types in, in your blood uh, specific uh, myeloid cell types um, and you know you, you could look for for rescue uh, of that very quantitative readout um, and you could expect that an intervention um, you know would be able to 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 achieve that endpoint over the, the, the time frame of, of several months um, and then we can also start to imagine what what do, what do trials look like in you know in adults well we know kind of what that endpoint is we, we want we want leukemia prevention um, but of course we first have to identify you know who are the subset of, of SDS patients that will go on to develop uh, um, you know, myeloid dysplastic syndrome and, and, and acute myeloid, myeloid leukemia. Um, and so we're going to have to build those prognostic tests and those and those adult trials and, the, and with, the, with the leukemia, pre, you know, prevention endpoint, those are going to be multi-year trials um, and they're going to have to leverage a lot of natural history. Uh, so, but, but, but the thing is, you know, unlike other communities where they don't really have good biomarkers yet or don't really have good bio uh, kind of natural history, you know, SDS is able to sort of, sort of benefit from that. Um, and, but, you know, and there is a sort of, standard of care that's available. I'm wondering, maybe, Julie, if you could shed a little bit of light for folks again, because probably people still don't really get what SDS is. Uh, sure, this is probably maybe the first time they even be hearing about this. So what, what, you know, part of the roadmap is envisioning, you know, how do we augment the standards of care that exist today? Because again, SDS is fortunate that there are interventions that they don't always work. Um, they're certainly not curative, um, but they're palliative. Um, uh, but can you maybe describe and paint a picture a bit for, for, for the audience? You know, what, what does that standard of care look like? And if we're going to be pursuing repurposing, you know, for example, in, in the roadmap to try to augment that standard of care, you know, maybe paint a picture of what that looks like for folks. Yeah. So the standard of care, um, so typically a patient, so here in the UK, will be um, seen by a, whether it's a pediatric or an adult clinic that pulls together um, a hematologist, a gastroenterologist, a dietitian, a dentist, um, as well as a, a psychologist, um, a psychotherapist. And they're uh, essentially um, 
typically will be on some form of treatment plan. Um, my daughter, for example, she takes Creon, which is a pancreatic enzyme with every meal. Um, and this is really the only intervention that she has as part of her treatment plan. Um, others who have more severe cyclical neutropenia, which is essentially where your, um, where your white blood cells are, are low um, at certain points in time, um, they basically get injections of, of Nupigen, um, which essentially have all sorts of different side effects. Um, some of them are also on, uh, on prophylactic antibiotics, um, which also is, is um, I mean, many parents are, are complain about, um, about the side effects of, of that as, as well. And so I think for, for all of, for all of these different patients and, and parents, um, it is a condition that you can, you know, you can manage, but really what most parents are, are worrying about is um, what happens when my son or my daughter uh, grows up and um, what is it, what happens? How do we look for the different, the different uh, biomarkers or the different, um, the different changes in the blood that indicate that my my child is developing AML, um, and is there anything that we can do earlier in terms of is there um, a bone marrow transplants which actually are have been not very effective? Can they be done earlier, or how do we how do we improve the standard of uh, standard of care? And I think this is where, I guess, um, the the second part of the roadmap comes in. But Ethan, I'll turn back to you to see when if you want to talk about that at this point in time. Yeah, no. I de let's let's go again. Anyone wants to jump in here? We're 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 really trying to get Q and A focused about you know the 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 modal the mo this multi uh, multi modality approach. And maybe I can dive into a little bit more specifics about what we're contemplating for SDS, and that can kind of stimulate some uh, you know some discussion and, and some feedback. So you know, on top of you know drug repurposing strategies, I think the kind of you know the other other the serious sort of clinical tracks that or therapeutic tracks that we're considering. You know, uh, one of them uh, revolves uh, around drug discovery that really exploits the deep understanding about how the uh, SBDS gene works. So S SDS is most of the time caused by mutation in a gene called SBDS. Um, we'll try to limit the alphabet soup here, but 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 SBDS is involved in. Uh, this process called uh, translation. So how, how do your cells actually make, make their proteins or these machines called ribosomes? And they have to be sort of built and certified to standard. Uh, and SBS, uh, SBDS is a gene that kind of um, does that, that final QC check uh, as the ribosome come off, comes off the production line. Um, and so, you know, it, there turns out that based on a very deep, deep understanding of how this gene works, which again, not a lot of communities have that 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 um, you know that benefit of, of that deep, deep knowledge base. But we know exactly kind of what the, the, the gene responsible for SDS most of the time, what it actually is doing at the molecular level. So you can actually take a rational drug discovery approach and, and, and actually try to bypass its function. So you can say, can I find a, a small molecule that can kind of bypass the requirement for the SBDS gene? And it turns out there's already a program in flight. You mentioned that Medici, uh, which is a UK-based life, life, life science investment fund, an accelerator is, is funding a startup um, that is coming out of uh, the UK and out of Professor Alan Warren's lab that made these deep mechanistic insights into how the, the, the disease gene works that allowed for this kind of rational drug drug discovery approach so that's you know drug discovery writ large is sort of the second therapeutic track after drug repurposing uh and again this can take advantage of both knowing something very deep about how the the gene that's missing works but you can also take an unbiased approach and turns out there's wonderful 
yeast and worm and slime mold <laughs> and fly models, most of that which actually have not unfortunately been published yet, but are but have been created in 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 labs. And we're going to part of this roadmap is to resurrect those unpublished results, get them out of the darkness, make them into a set of kind of credentialed disease models that can then be distributed to anyone in the community through biorepository channels. Um, and that's I think another part of I think probably what a lot of people's roadmaps involve is sort of creating a set of standardized you know. Uh, you know, disease models that, that that can then be shared by the community of researchers. Um, so, and, and then um, we also are taking two other therapeutic approaches, and I'll get to you second in a second, Peter. Thank you for coming up. Um, the the third therapeutic track is is centered around uh, base editing and a base editor. Uh, and I'm sure people have heard about uh, this this novel, exciting new kind of variant or next generation version of gene editing, which is called base editing. Um, and it turns out that base editing might be really special, uh, a special uh, therapeutic modality for SDS, because it turns out many, many SDS patients have a particular mutation, um, a, a, a letter, a single letter change, a single a SNP, uh, a C to T change that actually can be flipped back with this base editor approach. So you can flip back that single nucleotide polymorphism back to normal. And just because of a fluke of the genetic architecture of SDS, where again, you have like this 90%, uh, if you look at the tail of SDS, 90% of folks have a, a mutation in the same, have, have a kind of basically two recurring mutations in the same gene. Uh, and then there's this long tail, 10%, uh, that we'll get to uh, as well in this conversation. But gene editing might, or base editing might actually be really, really well uniquely suited to SDS given this, this fluke of genetic architecture where many patients have this same single uh, nucleotide uh, edit that in fact could be easily made on blood cells of the type that we're talking about um, outside of the body because uh, that's exactly what you do in something like a CAR-T therapy. So, and then the fourth track uh, would involve potentially a nucleic acid strategy. So in particular, there is an ASO that could be targeted for the second uh, or the, the most common mutation that's seen in patient. And, and that involves uh, uh, basically the fact that that mutation um, uh, affects splicing and you can use a splice modulating ASO to target that mutation. Either you're basically either with that base editor approach or this ASO approach, you could be targeting the same mutation by two different modalities and it would be a drug that could be applicable to a large swath of the population. Again, that's something that's unique that could happen in SES. So I'll pause there and let, uh, uh, let, let Peter uh, have ask his question or make his comment. Sure. Can you guys hear me all right? Absolutely. Yeah. Clear and clear. Perfect. Uh, yeah, just wanted to make a, a, a comment. So I'm, um, my name is Peter Halliburton. Um, my son is almost four years old and has a uh, rare genetic epilepsy called SYNGAP1. It's a de novo mutation in haploinsufficiency. Um, and so he, you know, essentially has one, one working copy of this gene and, and one uh, non-working uh, allele. Um, and so, you know, SYNGAP Research Fund um, that I'm a volunteer with, um, and, and I by no means uh, claim to be kind of the most intelligent when it comes to the science portion of things. Luckily, we've got a lot of um, strong members that are uh, other parents and, and board members in our, our SAB. But, you know, we are looking at kind of, you know, multiple modalities, um, you know, whether that be repurposing drugs. So we are looking for, uh, we're, we're conducting high throughput screens for, you know, identifying any sort of small molecules uh, that might be able to assist our kids. Um, we are also looking at ASOs as a primary uh, modality that we would be pursuing as well. We've looked into AAV 
uh, type modalities, and it sounds like from you know the feedback that we've received and guidance we've received that the gene may be you know a bit long uh, for pursuing that type of modality. Um, but then, and this is something that I'm just starting to scratch the surface of and and get educated around. But around what Ethan just mentioned momentarily ago, um, with both um, base editing and prime editing editing being potential options for Syngap as well. So, um, you know, we've we've had a uh, the gene was discovered maybe a uh, well discovered about 20 years ago, but first found in our kids just over a dozen years ago. Uh, our nonprofit was just formed in the last three years and has granted you know, somewhere north of 1.4 million, um, mostly to you know, academic type labs um, to help kind of get things, get things going. Um, but we, we do know of you know, several companies at this point that are looking at uh, mostly ASO um, options and therapies that could you know, potentially um, be given to our children in the next few years. And in your case, you're specifically referring to an ASO that would uh, upregulate. Upregulate. Is, is that right? Yeah. Could you maybe go into folks? I mean, not everybody knows the nuances there. I mean, it sounds like, uh, yeah. Could you comment maybe a little bit more about your particular, you know, your Syngap, Syngap's yeah. particular needs here? Yeah. So, so since it is a haploid sufficiency and we've got this one working allele and one non-working allele, uh, the idea is that you could, you know, overexpress that that uh, working copy. Uh, to be able to compensate for the non-working copy. So, you know, could you get, um, you know, 150 or 200% Syngap production out of that good copy? Um, I think I think some labs have looked into, you know, is there anything that we can do to get the non-working copy um, upregulated as well? That seems to be a less popular approach. From, from my understanding, it's more like the gene splicing type techniques, um, you know, things like uh, the Tango approach, um, uh, that, that Dravet has, has used themselves. Um, and that, that seems to be kind of the more popular approach that labs are looking at. And are you, is it, but that, that technology is basically kind of wrapped up with, with uh, Stoke, right? Or are there ways to pursue that, I guess, in, in academic settings, have you found? Or is kind of research only type projects or uh, have you found that that's restrictive? Uh, um, it, it, it sounds like, so to my understanding, it sounds like there are maybe a couple of similar but slightly different ways um, to do kind of the same thing. And so, um, you know, there there has been some academic work that's come out of um, Rick Huguenier's lab at, at Hopkins, who originally um, identified the Syngap gene uh, 20 years ago. And uh, uh, so, you know, I know that they have come up with some sort of approach, and I've kind of heard of another, a couple of others potentially as well that would do you know, something similar in terms of uh, overexpressing that, that working copy, maybe through a slightly different uh, way of doing it than, than what Stoke has done with their, with their Tango technology. And have you pursued like a small molecule activator to Syngap and kind of an, an, a different modality, but analogous to 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 tango except you know you're basically trying to act at the protein level uh instead of acting at sort of the the mrna level i i don't know if we're quite that far yet to be quite honest no worries no worries so uh i guess are there and, and well i've still got you up here <laughs> any other i guess sort of modalities that are kind of science fiction for you right now 
uh, but that you're sort of maybe trying to cook up in, in like maybe an academic lab setting or sort of doing some just preliminary type of experiments, or you, you think you're kind of settled on, you know, what modalities are in play and which ones are, you know, out of play? Um, I think some of the some of the base editing, some of the prime editing type stuff is you know, very, very new to us. And um, we've been kind of approached around some techniques that that may be promising um, for Syngap in particular with those techniques. So that's that's something that we're still kind of in the early stages of considering at this point. Um, trying to think outside of that. Um, I think that we're you know, I don't think we've written off AAVs altogether. Um, you know, I think that we're still trying to understand where that technology is going. Um, I mean, the payload issue is, is that, is that, because I know there are split payloads. I know, for, I know yeah, Robin yeah. Schultz is not here. Um, but like, is that, is that just not a, uh, something feasible that's, or that's what we've, we've heard that it would be a split play, payload basically. And, um, it sounds like maybe that's just more difficult to achieve than going down the ASO route. So that's, it just sounds like from, uh, you know, just the, the, the guidance that we've been given, it sounds like the ASO route may be the most promising for getting to something the most quickly, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Well, uh, I wanted to do just a, Peter, you're, you're more than welcome to either further comment or, or hang out here on stage. I want to do a, just a quick sort of station identification here. Uh, we're listening, you're listening to Gene Fixers. We're at us earlier than usual time because our guest today is, is Julia Hawkins, who's, who's joining us from the UK. Uh, she represents the SDS UK Foundation. SDS stands for Schwachman Diamond Syndrome. And uh, I've been working with, uh, with the SDS UK Foundation over the last few months on developing a, an SDS cure roadmap. And we've been talking about sort of what goes into a road roadmap and using the SDS uh, example, using other examples like SMA. Uh, there's a cystic fibrosis example. I see you here, Ollie, in, in the crowd. You actually, we met, Julie mentioned earlier that you were the one who connected us. Uh, you feel free if you can to join us maybe here as we transition in the second half of the conversation, sort of uh, away maybe from the, the particulars about the science and whether that's the clinical trial readiness or the or. Or, or sort of what modality to pick, but we want to kind of shift a little bit gears here to talk about the, the venture philanthropy and the funding side of this. Okay, you know the, the 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 axiom is you know funding follows the plan. Okay, so developing the plan, uh, uh, the scientific plan. Okay, so now how does it get funded? So Julie, if I can pass the, the mic back to you here, um, maybe you can kind of help paint a picture of what 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 what, what vision we're we're trying to develop with the, with for SDS. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess. Um... I think about it in a couple of different sections. Uh, one is when it comes to the animal models or models that we that we need to that we need to build that are basically hygiene. I see that we just need a budget, and that's something that SDS UK and the other patient and uh, parent organizations should fundraise for. Um, in addition, we'll apply for grants. So I know in the UK there are several uh, grant making bodies. That, um, that we will apply for funding for. Then when it comes to the programs that are currently in academic settings, one has been funded by Medici. Um, I'm hoping that others will also be funded by other VCs. The way that I think about it is SDS UK um, and the other SDS patient organizations should be able to invest alongside Medici or any other fund into these programs. Um, and the reason why I think that that's important is because it not only keeps us aligned, uh, but it also means that should any of these programs go on to be commercially successful and deliver a return for the VC, 
I also want there to be a return for the patient organizations and that for any capital that is uh, that is generated by these programs should then be funded into into more research. Um, ideally, there would also be an opportunity for, for example, when Medici creates a company um, for SDS Therapeutics, which is really pro uh, progressing the small molecule approach, ideally, um, SDS UK and the other pa patient organizations should also receive um, some options from the, from the option pool. And the reason why I think that's important or why that could be a possibility is because that way it's basically a, um, a return on SDS UK and the other patient organizations giving data, giving patient data, giving the registry data towards the trials um, and towards the companies. That I, it's something actually that I, um, I started to discuss with Medici and I know that they're actually open to and Ethan um, was also on that call, and I think they were really open to having this kind of exploratory conversation with us as to how do we best not only align the patient organization with the program, but also ensure that the patient organizations that are that's research focused can essentially get income from um, from any potential successes that there are in the future and that th those will be channeled towards further research. And that's by no means unusual, right? I mean, I mean and, and, uh, people may know I had, I had a, unfortunately a brief, all too brief stint at the, at the Reef Foundation cut short by, by COVID and many foundations had trouble last year, but, 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 you know, the, 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 the whole plan there was, uh, you know, to, to build, uh, a, you know, a kind of venture philanthropy, you know, model, uh, and, and, and what did that mean? Well, the Reef Foundation is on the cap table of, you know, Onward, which was formerly GTX Medical, which is a company that's developing uh, uh, neuromodulation technology that was really incubated by funds that the Reef Foundation invested in grants years ago. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they hold the stake um, and it's, it's not unusual. So I think that's, you know, you know, that's just one aspect of how this can play out. Um, but, but, but certainly, you know, I think other people can maybe point to, to other examples of this, right? So if you wanted to comment on this part of, of the topic of, uh, of, of a cure roadmap in terms of how you operationalize it and, and the funding side, please, uh, by all means, you know, raise your hand, come up on stage, ask questions. Uh, Leon, uh, thanks for joining us. What's your question or comment? Sorry, actually, just joining the call. Uh, I was uh, in another conference call. So if you can put me on the stage, don't kick me out. I, I want to listen to uh, a little bit and then ask my question. Is that okay? Oh, no worries. No worries. Yeah. No, we, we just, we're just inviting folks to sort of talk here about, you know, this, this, this model here. And, and you know, obviously, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see how interesting to hear how other people ha are kind of approaching this in terms of how are they breaking this, this sort of funding out as well? Are they thinking about creating, uh, allocating funds for, for animal model, animal model development? development and, and or, or stem cell model or IPSC model development. And if those happen, you know, are they being done in such a way where there's going to be sort of no strings attached and that, you know, anybody can get access to those models? Um, you know, we, we certainly have to, uh, uh, you know, put that kind of provision in there. And that, that should be just a standard that, that you know, that, that, that uh, you know, that everybody um, you know, kind of pursues, you know, what do we do at that next stage in, in terms of now funding, um, you know, when an academic idea gets to that point of commercialization, um, you know, is there a way to then have, you know, 
participation there at the foundation level and, and other and other potential community stakeholders too um and, and then of course you know thinking even uh, about you know biopharma partnership and collaboration because ultimately you're going to create startups in this ecosystem you know they're going to have to exit somehow um and you know one way they can exit is is by sort of being uh, bought by by another company especially a company that's already focused on on rare disease or genetic disease and there are plenty of very large successful companies now that um, you know, that have proven out that model and that are kind of, you know, buyers at the end of this uh, pipeline. Uh, and, and that's how you can imagine then the funds that Julia is talking about reinvesting, you know, those would come from, you know, proceeds of those kinds of exits that could then allow for the next generation of therapies to be funded, right? And in some ways, this just harkens back to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation model um, and, and how they're, you know, that 3.3 billion kind of windfall uh, is what they're directing toward, you know, the long tail now. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, 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 the mutations and because, you know, CF has a case of a very, very long tail of mutations that, and, and so they have, you know, multiple approved drugs now that can cover you know, 90% of CF patients, but there's still that 10% long tail. Um, and there's also that 10% long tail, uh, you know, here in, in SDS as well. I don't know, Julie, if you wanted to comment on that. Uh, and, and again, if you have questions or comments about sort of this, you know, how do you fund a cure roadmap? I mean, we talked sort of in the first half of what, what are the scientific ingredients that go into it? What are the community building ingredients? But now you actually have to invest and it's not just going to be a GoFundMe here or there that gets the job done. It has to be a more sustained, uh, more sustained effort. Yeah, so I think I probably can share some of my experiences. Um, so uh, I actually did work for a nonprofit. I worked actually in a philanthropic venture fund for almost three years. Uh, I was with the Cancer Research Institute. As you probably don't know, it's the oldest um, charity exclusive focus on immune oncology. Uh, it's based in New York City. And the scientific director is Jane Allison, uh, who won Nobel Prize, I think, two or three years, uh, two years ago, 2019. And uh, so, as you know, the immune oncology space is quite exciting. Oh, someone's a very cute kid. <laughs> uh, no worry, they muted themselves very quickly. <laughs> no. So uh, uh, when I was there, actually, yeah, I learned this kind of a, a it's called a social impact uh, or impact uh, investment, right? So the uh, measurement, success measurement metrics is not about how much money you make. It's a social impact. Uh, but the social impact could be defined by different way. That's a philanthropy uh, venture venture uh, world really is. Uh, I think this cystic fibrosis is probably one of them. Uh, definitely, they are the most successful one. I, I remember uh, my uh, uh, the the uh, managing uh, director, founding managing director of my fund, actually uh, joined one workshop to really listen to uh, cystic fibrosis uh, foundation. I think uh, one of uh, some people from there was uh, the. Um, the uh, uh, presenter from the workshop, and as well as uh, leuke uh, leukemia and the lymphoma society, as you probably know, that's probably the one of the biggest uh, cancer-specific charity, and they have very uh, successful uh, philanthropic venture fund as well. So that's uh, pretty much the place I used to play. And uh, just to bring to your question, how do you like uh, you know uh, invest and help? Uh, those cutting-edge uh, um, innovation, which may help a very small uh, group of patients, in this case, could be rare disease, could be super rare uh, pediatric cancers, right? That's also falling into the category, unfortunately. Especially pedi pediatric cancer, as you you may uh, you may well uh, well aware, uh, that's where like a typical pharma company don't want to touch. They don't want to touch kids. <laughs> typically speaking, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know extra uh, barriers for them. So that's actually uh, something for uh, for like a CRI used to focus on. 
uh, and also some rare diseases, right? Rare type of uh, cancer, uh, like sarcoma, something like that. That's also where we uh, we focus. Not a, not the only one, but uh, one of those uh, focus that we had. Uh, so I think that's kind of a, you know, uh, one um, um, funding mechanism uh, for people who just feel like the, the disease or medical problem they're passionate about would not fit in the uh, typical, you know, biotech, biopharma pipeline. I think that's definitely where you can, um, you know, kind of reach out and uh, find some help along the way. Uh, you know, cystic fibrosis uh, story definitely is uh, like inspiration for people in philanthropic adventure world. But I think that there's probably uh, other solutions as well. So, but I'm here really to learn. Uh, you, if you ask me which question do I have, I, honestly, I really don't have many. Uh, but uh, you know, so so nothing about myself uh, is uh, I, I I was also work as a sales side analyst at Barclays, and uh, over there I uh, we uh, our team cover a lot of gene therapy and the gene editing companies. So all the four gene editing companies and um, beans. Therapeutics, uh, Adidas, Intelia, and CRISPRs were all under our coverage. Obviously, um, and also gene therapy companies like Cerepta, uh, Biomarine, uh, um, Regenics Bio. Uh, right now, I think they also got a Voyager initiated after uh, after left the company, um, the team. So, I mean, gene therapy, obviously, uh, the, probably the primary uh, application right now for gene therapy is rare disease. And uh, a lot of them actually uh, had that potential and at least uh, uh, show that they can be um, uh, curable, uh, such as, you know, we, I don't need to mention this, uh, you know, everyone knows about Zhao Jensma, right? Uh, um, know about oh, yeah, it. No, I, yeah, I brought that up at the beginning. And yeah, yeah no, right? so, I, I, think, I think as you're talking, you're just kind of, you know, again, it's like you look to the cancer playbook and it's like everything's kind of been worked out in cancer. And then, you know, it's now going over into, you know, into genetic disease, into, into CNS. It's like the examples have all been set there. Uh, and including, you know, at this at this stage in terms of what venture philanthropy models and what funding models and, and foundation funding models work. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just so many examples. I mean, Cis Fibrosis Foundation is just kind of the that touchstone example, but there's, uh, again, and, and it's in monogenic disease. But yeah, if you go back to cancer, you, you, just, you can, it's the root of all of these, this innovation in terms of business model, uh, in terms of partnership model. Um, uh, Daniel, uh, wanted to let you uh, uh, chime in since you, you came up on stage. What's your question or comment? Oh, I really appreciate it, and uh, uh, I'll have to ask you to forgive me. I'm, you know, I'm uh, sort of a finance guy, so I'm I'm not going to be. Uh, I may not be clear, but what I'm trying to get uh, sort of a layman's grasp on is, uh, you know, sort of this, um, you know, sort of the overarching. Uh, restrictions on, you know, cloning and editing the genome. And then, um, you know, sort of this idea that there are certain um, uh, viruses as well as vaccines that can actually um, uh, 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 assimilate, if that's the right word, with the uh, with the DNA within the cell. But 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 then with regard to to gene therapy, you know, uh, I guess the the nuance there is that it's it seems as though it would be, I'm asking whether it's hereditary. And in that way, if it were hereditary through, um, you know, either the mother or father or so on and so forth, uh, you know, is that not effectively the same thing as, uh, it's not technically the same thing as editing the genome perhaps, but is it not effectively the same thing? And the reason that I ask, I'll just make this last contextual comment is because I do a lot of work with uh, ecosystem help 
uh, health and biodiversity and sort of the relationship, the evolutionary forces and, and dynamics between diversity and complexity and diversity and complexity. And I just wonder, you know, how much of this type of wonderful work that you all are doing could sort of interact with that process. Well, if, if I'm getting that, uh, the parts that resonates with me there, your question are about, well, implications of germline, you know, gene editing versus, you know, editing of somatic cells. And I think in the case of SDS, schwachmann diamond syndrome, which we're kind of focusing on today, uh, you know, as kind of our example of, of a cure roadmap is we would be thinking about base editing uh, applications or gene therapy applications sort of ex vivo and sort of, you know, on, on somatic cells. Um, and so... You know, I think we're definitely sort of staying away from, you know, that 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 third rail. But then, yeah, when it comes to sort of the question of, you know, we definitely are, you know, I think this is, you know, other other groups where you you, you can kind of do ex vivo treatments or, or other organ systems like the eye where you, you know, where you don't have to go systemically. You know, you kind of want to, I think, as a general approach, like de-risk things there. Um, but before you kind of apply that modality more systemically or try to get that modality, um, you know, targeted to, to more tissues. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I have any more sort of comment on any philosophical point, maybe that we were getting at there, but uh, yeah, I think in terms of just sort of the, the brass tacks for this, for this case of, of Schrockman diamonds and SDS, you know, we, we, we were kind of focusing here on like kind of, the base editing technology that would be applied, you know, outside of the body ex vivo, uh, and, and to sort of somatic cells. Uh, that, that you know cells that you're trying to head off uh, from being cancerous basically i don't know julie did you have any other thoughts or comments not from me excellent well daniel i hope that thank of, you that, that yeah I address your question yeah perfect um Absolutely. i have another question uh so i don't know whether there's a popcorn style or oh, sorry there's a new new person i'll let him uh, let ollie ask question first sorry about that yeah, no worries. Hey, Ali, how's it going? Uh, you're the one who who connected uh, uh, Julie and me in the first place here. So glad you can make it hey, on stage. Maybe... Hi, hi, Julia. Hi, Ethan. It's great to um, join you. I'm a, meant to join a bit earlier, but I had a couple of things to do. But it's really good to see you. Uh, see you both on here. And uh, no, likewise. I feel, uh, I feel good about uh, uh, having put you two together, and it's great that um, that, that you've you've moved so far. Um, but I knew I knew it would go that way. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you can. I just yeah, wanted maybe, to. Um, yeah, but I just. I, I think there's probably um, not as much time as I'd hope, but um, I think I just wanted to pick thinking about sort of uh, funding and roadmaps and just more in general. I thought I'd just share a thought, which is I suppose largely from my own experience in the cystic fibrosis world, but uh, and just building on something I did hear Julia say, which is. Um, I, I think it's really important for for um, parent per, per patient groups and parents and who other other actors in this in this um, in this mission to think about self how to create something self sustaining and that naturally means financial having a financial mechanism to be able to um, get some money um, to, to be able to rely on how how your funding is going to come and I think one thing that the foundation CF foundation has been good at is is thinking about that and creating mechanisms to to share in some of the success around um, when when therapies have been approved successfully to give them a um, uh, a revenue stream so they can think about investing over a long over the long term in multiple shots on goal and the infrastructure to enable it because I think it's so important to have a roadmap and not just not just trying to put out, put all your eggs in one basket and bet on particular technology because we don't really know. And I think in reality, what happens is 
they might be a therapy which helps people and that leads to other learnings and other opportunities and and um there, there could be a chain of therapies which together add up to something which looks a bit like a cure and then eventually a cure um, but but it's difficult to actually predict which one's going to work and so it's important to have that that self-sustaining kind of engine to to keep uh, taking more and more shots on goal so I think that's really important to think like that and and sometimes the, the CF Foundation talk to uh, uh, talk a lot to the Gates Foundation for example and I think has learned a lot from the Gates Foundation who talk about um, leveraging all the tools of capitalism and I think particularly in the UK people in the in the medical research world and the, the charity world are not comfortable talking about um, sharing in profits or dealing even dealing with companies sometimes but I think that's something that people that you have to get over and uh, if you're really serious about about your mission you know to help people with people living with these diseases that um, you have to um, use to do what you need to do to get to where you need to be and I, I think that is something foundation's been quite good at uh, uh, but not everyone has the confidence to do it um, and I think it's important to understand what value is that you bring as a, as a patient organization and that's not just money sometimes it's more the more valuable things are really the things that um, drug development companies can't can't get without help from patient organizations and that could be just pulling in KOLs registry data is a big thing as we all know and um, clinical trial facilitation understanding what are the biomarkers and the outcome measures and what, what are the measures that matter to patients and bringing in patient perspective all of these things have a huge value and I think it's important to have the confidence to ask for something back in return for that value if you uh, on the on the road to curative therapies, so I just wanted to, sh I like to say phrase. that I like that ring. I like the ring of that. I mean, Julia, please respond. No, I mean, I think there's so many things that Ollie said there that I that um, resonate. I think um, the concept of having many shots on goal is is something that I I mean I I ascribe to, and and I think you know as a as a newcomer into a, any disease. I think you not only do you gravitate to the you know the existing KOLs and the work that they've done, and although I I absolutely am so grateful for the the life work that many of these academics have ha, have poured into their understanding of SDS and moving the knowledge of the disease forward, I'm you know until we have therapies and many therapies in the clinic, I don't think that as a parent I will want to just sit back and watch and and I think um and and I think the concept also being self-sustaining is, is really rings true as well because we need to find a way um and which is why we have this concept of um of being able to raise money to invest alongside reputable VCs uh who do get there um and then to build um to to essentially build a portfolio of um of, of, of different options that are at various stages of, of drug development. Um, I think to me that makes makes perfect sense. So yeah, I mean, Ollie, thank, thanks again for, for connecting us with, um, or for connecting me with, with Ethan, because I think it's really transformed how, um, how we crystallize and articulate the roadmap in order for everyone to be able to get behind it. If I can, maybe we've got 
another sorry we got another 10 minutes here and i'm thinking maybe we could reserve that for the the long tail and because because every disease has its long tail um, you know in the case of sds as i described earlier the genetic architecture is such that you've got 90 percent of patients have a mutation in one gene sbds and and, and, of, and of those most have the, the one or two of these recurring mutations and in fact half uh, of all patients have the same two or compound heterozygous for the same two mutations. Um, but then it turns out that there's 10% of SDS patients who don't have a mutation in the SBDS gene. Uh, there's, you know, several other genes. In fact, they're all, it turns out in the same structural complex. So it all adds up in terms of the molecular biology, but, but the genetically it's just a different identity. It's a different gene. Um, in, in theory, there, there should be mutation agnostic uh, approaches that work for an SBDS gene mutation that would also work for these other non-SBDS gene mutations, but we have to figure that out. And then, of course, there are folks who have an SBDS mutation, but they're, they're, it's a private one. It's, it's not one of the, um, they don't have one of the common ones. Uh, and so we're going to have to consider what you do there. And it seems like, I don't know, Ali, if you can comment on on how well the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has done this, where, you know, now they, they say that, you know, among Trikafta or Canby, Calidico, you've got a covering you know, 90% of, of CF patients, but they still have that long tail. And, 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 and how, how are they approaching that? Are, are, they, are they kind of like the continued benchmark of how, how, how a, a cure roadmap and a foundation should approach their, their own long tail? Honestly, I think that that's something that, um, so, I mean, I, I was working with the foundation, but I'm not anymore. So I'm just a general, com general comment. I think this, in some ways, um, the fact that, 90% uh, of people with CF have what, at least one copy of the of the most common mutation uh, has made things easier than in a lot of other ultra rare diseases where you're talking about developing a therapy for a handful of people. Whereas, you know, there's um, there's kind of probably 70,000 people in the world who have uh, at least one copy of this particular mutation, F5O8 Delta. And so so now into this new world of law, the long tail, as you call it, uh, which is probably about a thousand mutations, I would estimate. Um, it is completely different um, paradigm. And I think that's something that the CF world is still learning. But in general, I think there's a hope that moving from small molecules, which are likely to be very uh, mutation specific in the in sense of what's the functional defect in the protein moving up to mRNA and then gene editing should provide opportunities for more let's say sort of wholesale therapies that could address a number of therapies if not all a number of mutations if not all of them but I, I think that looking at super things like super exons and kind of template type approaches um, is one way forward but it's some um, it's new territory and um, I think it's something that we're all trying to get our heads around um and you know, the other thing i'd say which is not entirely on the point but i think even in our in the cf world we've been very good at picking up when we talk about um the long tail i think we'd probably find that if we had perfect information that the, that tail is covering more people than we think because we found that we're only very good at picking up the most common mutations in a certain population which is the caucasian population but actually it turns out um, what we consider, what 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 are considered currently to be very very rare mutations, might not be as rare. It's just that we don't we're not so good at picking them up because um, the infrastructure and the knowledge doesn't exist to to detect them all the time. So that's just something a bit specific to CF. But I think we do need to be a bit careful about 
the way we talk about these mutations sometimes because they probably some of them probably are as rare as we think um right i, I think that um we're trying to in cf we're trying to sort of learn from other communities work with other communities and um and you know inevitably it it can't, it's going to be impossible it's it, we it's going to be much harder to develop a gene a gene editing um therapy for example where in a mutation where there's only two or three people in the world who have it rather than a couple of hundred and um i think it seems almost impossible and so that's why we're, at the moment there's a focus on on um, things like super exons and and a more template type approaches that could be either already able can, to help can you briefly people. can you briefly describe a super exon for folks who don't who don't know well it's um i'm not a scientist but my understanding of it is that it's uh it, it's um kind of a it, 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 to me it's almost in it's in between a sort of gene editing and a gene therapy approach where there's an in, inserting a a large chunk of the of a, of a, um, a functional copy of the gene at a certain point um in the cf gene kind of upstream of where the defect is with a stop code on I the end. so, so, so that you would so that the um you know that the cellular machinery would read through to the point of reading a a newly implanted correct strip of gene which is enough to give you the functionality and then stop before it goes on to read the original um defective gene but so i think that's my understanding but it's sort of technically difficult to understand yep. where to put that in and not mess up the regulatory um, systems in the gene. We want to yeah, try and rely on the natural regulatory sort of, um, you know, apparatus. For That's sure, for sure. Uh, it uh, just kind of makes me, the philosophical question, then when does a, when does a super axon become a mini gene? And uh, yeah. maybe we have a discussion about that another day, but, 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 but you're so kind it's of... It's unusual because the gene's so big, so we can't fit in right. the AV and, and it's right. sort of trying to get around that as well. Right. Uh, I mean, but your kind of point about, you know, there's the long tail and then there's the really long tail. There's like, okay, hundreds in the world. Um, and then there's like one or, you know, two or three in the world. And so how do you, how do you individualize, you know, what are the, what are the modalities that can be individualizable to that level? Um, and, or not so, not so much that level, but so to be able to actually find these folks and make a difference. Uh, it seems like, that's a whole other uh, set of complexities. But uh, I'll pause there for a second. Let, let Julia uh, comment. Nothing, nothing more from me on that point. Well, uh, we're, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. If anyone had any questions or comments, especially folks who've been listening in uh, this, this hour, please uh, you know, raise your hand. Uh, come on up. Uh, we'll, we'll probably be winding this down a little bit.